This next story is also from Not That Bad. Uh, And this is Slaughterhouse Island by Jill Christman. The thing about telling this story, even 30 years later, is that even though I know where the culpability rests firmly, I have trouble soaking off the most dogged shame. I am scraping away the last of the sticky residue with my thumbnail. Yes, I did some stupid things. We all do. But now I know we're allowed to be kids who mask our gut deep insecurities with vanity. We get to wear crop tops and tight jeans with a ribbon of lace for a belt and high-heeled boots. We get to check ourselves ten times in the dorm room mirror, necks craning to see how fat our skinny little asses look from the back. We even get to guzzle sweet drinks and swallow harmless-looking tabs. We hope it might make us feel better or dance faster or look prettier or just forget. We get to want something to come easy for a change. We get to make every choice on that daily life scale from forward thinking to utter self-sabotage. And we still don't deserve to be raped. Not ever. How did we ever get to a place where victim blaming was wedged so far into our brains? Turn this around, I think to myself, scraping with my thumbnail. Turn this around. What would Kurt have had to do for me to feel justified in raping him. There's no answer to that question. I want to fold time. I want to walk into that Italian restaurant in Eugene, Oregon, where my 18-year-old self is having her first awkward date with Kurt, take her by the hand and ask her to join me in the bathroom. Instead of letting her throw up the four bites of creamy pasta she ate for dinner, which I know is all she can really think about as she watches Kurt's pointy teeth flash in the candlelight. I want to pull her around in the corner, hurry down the hall in the opposite direction, and make for the exit. We'll leave together. I'll walk her back to the dorm, and we'll have a talk. I'll save her, somehow, from what's going to happen to us next. Even though, sweet girl, I know it's not your fault. None of this was ever your fault. Do you hear me? Not. Your. Fault. But from here, back in the future, I can only watch. You drive a Porsche, rhyming with borscht without the final T. I'd said, uh, after I'd lowered myself down into the soft leather of Kurt's sleek silver car, hoping my friends on the second floor of the freshman dorm were peeking out from behind the curtains. He'd leaned in toward me, breath too minty, already thinning dark hair glinting with product in the spring sunshine, and moved his large hand from the gear shift to my thigh. I think he was trying to look sexy, but managed instead to look maniacal. Porsche, he said. People who don't have Porsches call them Porsches. People who drive Porsches call them Porsches. I moved my knee a fraction, the tiniest of objections, and said, well, I don't have a Porsche, so I'd better call it a Porsche. You're with me now, he said, thin lips curling into a smile. Now you can call this car a Porsche. I hadn't had a date like this before, which I imagined to be a real college date, during which Kurt picked up, moved, or lifted everything that might need picking up, moving, or lifting. The door to the Porsche 
my chair at the table, my body by the arm when other man, when another man came too close, and of course the check. We went to a real sit-down Italian restaurant with white linen tablecloths, candles, and dim lighting, where we talked about the extensive time he and I both spent at the gym on the edge of campus, me in aerobics classes burning away any calories I'd consumed in moments of weakness, and him lifting and slamming giant iron discs and the testosterone soup that was the main gym. We were both too tan, this being the era of ten tans for twenty dollars in the warm booths on the campus strip. I was in my first year in the Honors College, reading Darwin and Shakespeare and Austin, having my mind blown by Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and theories about sexual selection and how the universe began. Kurt was in business, a super senior, the first I'd heard such a moniker, though it didn't take me long to figure out that the super didn't mean anything good. Since we had nothing else to discuss, the conversation turned to training, to tanning. I told him how I always fell asleep under the lights, the humming blue womb offering respite from the gray Eugene winter. Although I'm sure I wouldn't have said womb, not that night, and Kurt's teeth glowed in the dim candlelight like something out of a horror movie. After dinner, Kurt took me back to an apartment that looked like nobody lived there, gave me something to drink, and led me through the living room with its black leather couch and glass coffee table into his bedroom. Closing the door behind him, he showed me the hand weights he kept in a line by the wall like shoes and then pushed me toward a desk. I remember his hands always on my body, and even before he pulled the mirror and the razor blade out of the center drawer, I was thinking, this isn't good. Kurt reached into the pocket of his coat and pulled out a paper packet. Druggy origami, tipping two snowy piles onto the glass. I watched him chopping and scraping, wincing a bit at the sound. A fork on china, nails on a chalkboard, a warning alarm. I would fail to heed. Down to roots, down to the roots of my nerve, nerve fibers, I knew the thing to do was get out. But this was to be a night of many college firsts. First restaurant date, first ride in a Porsche, first blow. Kurt rolled a crisp green bill from his wallet and showed me what to do. It burned, and then, not much. The coke had done nothing more than make my eyes feel really, really wide open. I'd be hyper alert for what came next. Which was also almost nothing. He kissed me. And as he did, he pulled me away from the desk and down onto the bed. He was the world's worst kisser, all probing tongue, like a sea slug trying to move down my throat. I was repulsed. But saved, I know now, by the coke. Kurt couldn't get it up. He rolled against me, and through the thin fabric of its dress khakis, I could feel him against my thigh, soft as a dinner roll. George Michael sang through the speakers, Rather than pursue, what he must have known from experience was a losing game. Kurt sprang from the bed, as if he'd planned it all that way, and went to the stereo to turn it up. I will be your father figure. Thirty minutes later, when I asked for a ride back to the dorm, he gave me one without much of a fight in the Porsche. 
The next day, apparently having had more fun than I had, Kurt called to ask if I'd go with him to Shasta Lake, an annual Memorial Day fraternity tradition at the University of Oregon. At least a hundred rented a houseboats, each carrying eight or so couples, kegs tapped and flowing, red solo cups bobbing in the water like buoys. Imagine the drinking and the drugs. Imagine the sleeplessness and the unfinished brains. Imagine the heat, the dehydration, and the food packed by the boy men hosting this nightmare. Imagine that nobody on the whole boat had the sense to bring sunscreen. Imagine the depth of seething, unmet need. And then to imagine the depth of the water. Imagine, too, that I'd already made plans to go with a friend from my dorm, a guy named Jeff, who had pledged a fraternity the previous fall. Stretched to his full height, Jeff reached only to my nose. But he was clever and made me laugh, so when he'd quite casually offered to bring me along to Shasta, I'd agreed. But a real invitation from a real date, with a real car and a real apartment, with a real fortune, for, with real furniture, seemed like just the kick and status I needed to go from full scholarship hippie kid with Beatles posters and batik bedspreads stapled to the walls of her dorm room to, to what? What did I want to be? Part of the system my liberal act artist parents had always rejected? Noticed? Accepted? Desired? I didn't even like Kurt. He represented everything I'd been taught to distrust in the world. A privileged fuck from the burbs who thought anything could be his for the right price, including me. So at first I did the right thing. I said no to Kurt. But my best girlfriend, D, had not gotten a date for the lake trip, and I felt bad leaving her behind. Also, I didn't want to go on this trip as a lone independent, an honors college student, a veritable freak, in a vast Grecian sea, with Jeff as my sole companion. So when Kurt's frat buddy agreed to take D on the trip with us if I would go with Kurt, I consented. And then all hell broke loose. When I told Jeff that I was going with Kurt instead, he flipped out. His room was just below mine, and all night he played angry music and hung out at his window screaming that I was a bitch, a whore, a fucking cunt. Other boys from the dorm joined Jeff in his righteous fury, smashing things against the floor, pounding on my door, and hissing through the crack. I didn't get mad back. I felt terrible and guilty, cowering in my room, while the whole male population of my dorm rose up with a clear message. I had belonged to them, and I had strayed from the pack, hooking up with a rogue male and threatening the sanctity of the whole goddamn dormitory gene pool. At night, I took in their anger, crying so hard and so long without the good sense to take out my contact lenses that, in the morning, I had to have an emergency appointment with the or uh, ophthalmologist. My corneas were both scratched, one eye so badly I had to wear an eye patch. I was a sea wench who had survived the shaming, but barely. And there was no turning back now. I would go to Shasta as a pirate with Kurt. We hadn't even left the dock before it was obvious that Dee's companion wasn't much of a date. 
They weren't even speaking to each other, but she didn't care. She may as well have been on another boat, lost as she was in drugs, Jack Daniels, and the eyes of a new friend with whom she was swaying near a boombox, hitting rewind on a Warren Eagles cassette. Desperado locked in as their song. By the time Kurt and his pack of drunken brothers, baked in every way there is to be baked, anchored our boat on Slaughterhouse Island in the middle of Shasta Lake, the deep water was not just a metaphor. On the roof deck, in my magenta bikini, I felt alone and trapped. The fraternity brothers on the boat assigned all the girls' nicknames for the weekend, and mine was Carcass. Kurt hovered over me. I knew it was too late to get away, and somehow I knew what was coming. I don't know how many white houseboats docked on our side of the island that night. At least a dozen. After the sun had set, fires sprang up. The music got louder and voices rose in a discordant roar. I'd refused the coke all day. That night in Kurt's apartment had been enough for me. But when the party was raging, Kurt pulled a baggie out of his pocket and held something out to me in the palm of his big hand. Brown mushrooms like shrunken heads on tiny necks. I took a few and chewed the tough, dry stems, washing them down with a slug from his beer. When the mushrooms started to kick in, I slipped away from Kurt and the hordes of drunken Greeks climbing the bare slope where the dark, swaying shapes of human bodies circled the flames, pushing through some thick brush near the top and finding shelter next to what seemed at the time to be a fantastically magnanimous scrub pine. From my refuge, I, w- I watched the bonfires burning red, a post-apocalyptic hellscape, the moored houseboats bobbing like a flotilla of crocodiles. I was well hidden, and far below I could see Kurt moving from boat to boat to boat, up and down the bank looking for me, screaming my name, yelling, Where is she? Where the fuck is she? Who's she with? Who do you see her with? I was with nobody, alone on the top of the hill, and I knew when I came down I would be caught, so I stayed under the tree. Two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock, the mushrooms wore off, and I was tired, so tired and cold. When I finally didn't see him anymore, I crept back down to the boat. This was my thought. If I am in bed, if I am in bed and sleeping when he finds me, maybe he will let me sleep. I will sleep until tomorrow, when the boat will return to the dock and I will be safe. But when he found me, I was not safe. They will wake you up to rape you. The next morning, when the boat docked, Kurt walked into town and came back with a paper bag of Dunkin' Donuts, cream-filled, jelly-filled, powdered, and plain, at least two dozen. And he said to me, Here, Jill, you get first choice. Six hours before, he had a pillow stuffed in my mouth to muffle my screams, and now he had the nerve to give me first choice on a bag of fucking donuts. I wondered then if I could have fought harder. I hadn't bitten off his earlobe and spit it in his face. I hadn't jammed my knee into his testicles with all the force of my starved 18-year-old body. I hadn't leaped to my feet and rammed a well-placed heel into his kneecap. I pleaded, I cried, and finally I screamed for help. But I didn't hurt him back because I didn't want to die. 
I remember the pillow in my face, and when there wasn't air enough left for screaming, thinking, breathe, breathe, breathe. In the bright morning sun, Kurt looked hideous, the bag of donuts hanging in the air between us, the smell of hot sugar over the stale beer and vomit all around us. His eyes registered nothing, nothing at all, and I imagined clawing them out. No, thank you, I said, turning away. I don't eat donuts. When we got back from California, Kurt called me on the dorm phone in the hall again and again. Here's what I didn't say. You fucker, you raped me. You think I'm going to go out with you? Here's what I did say. I'm busy, and I can't, and I have to work, write a paper, do some math. I didn't call what happened on the boat that weekend rape. And then, a month after Shasta, I agreed to see Kurt. I had a ticket out of Portland to fly to Savannah, Georgia, and I needed a ride to the airport. Kurt wanted to be that ride. What harm could come of it, I thought. Some nice boys from the Honors College, actual friends, got me as far as Portland and offered at least ten times to take me from the bookstore where we were hanging out to the airport. They didn't know what Kurt had done to me, but they knew I didn't like him. Why did I let Kurt come and pick me up? I still can't answer that question. Jill, it's so good to see you, Kurt said when he pulled up to where I was standing by the curb with my suitcase. I've missed you. Have you missed me? He tried to kiss me, but I turned my face away. Kurt unlatched the tiny truck, wedged in my suitcase, and then, putting his hand on the small of my back, guided me to the passenger side of the growling car. As soon as I was in, I noticed something hanging from the rearview mirror. Something familiar. Hey, I said. That's mine. Yes, Kurt said, touching a finger to the loop of white lace, knotted around the base of the mirror. Your belt. I wanted something to remember you by. I reached up to snatch down Kurt's trophy, but he stopped my hand and squeezed, leering. Finders keepers. As the Porsche pulled away from the curb, I felt a wave of loathing and fear. Kurt took the wrong road out of downtown. Where are you going? I asked. I forgot something at my parents' place, he said. We're just going to swing by on our way to the airport. But it's not on the way to the airport. I knew Kurt was living with his parents in the suburbs. It's fine, he said, grinning. You've got plenty of time. At the house, I wanted to wait in the car, but he said I should come in to meet his parents. They weren't home, of course, and somehow we ended up in Kurt's bedroom. He closed the door. What are you doing? I said. I have to go. Kurt put his face close to my face. The aftershave, the mint, all of him sickening to me. We were in a kind of dance, me backing up, till I hit the edge of the bed. Kurt smiled. He put his hand on my shoulders and pushed me down. 
I landed flat on my back and he fell over me, pinning me down with his body. Again. No. No, 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 no. It was going to happen again. Then we heard something. Someone coming in the door. Kurt jumped off me and reached down, offering me his hand and pulling me up. I was in shock. I said nothing. There was nothing left for me to say. Kurt laughed. What did you think I was going to do, Jill? Rape you? In his own terrifying way, Kurt had named his own crime before I could. And yet I never filed a report. I never even said, you raped me. I did nothing. I got out of that fucking car at the airport, and I never saw him again. In the bunk on Shasta Lake, Kurt had put a pillow over my face so no one would hear me scream. But now I wonder, who would have heard me? And if someone had heard on that boat anchored to an island, I didn't know until today was named for an actual meat market and slaughterhouse. Who would have acted? Who would have helped me? From the distance of nearly 30 years, my heart made vulnerable by motherhood and my fierce desire to protect my children, I wonder how many other women were raped that night on Slaughterhouse Island. I feel certain I was not the only one. In Savannah, the summer after the rape, I had sex with more different men in three months than in all the years before and all the years after combined. My unarticulated logic went like this. If I give my body away, over and over, I can prove to myself that sex is my choice, even though, and this seems significant now, I always let the men choose me. Until I was 19 years old, it never occurred to me that I could do the choosing. Not you. Not you. Not you. Yes, okay, you. The morning I wrote this essay, I went to my bookshelf and hooked a finger over the red spine of paperback. I never called it rape. The cover is designed to look as if part of the book has been ripped away, and the pages of my copy are very browning on the edges. Published in 1988, the very year I went to Shasta with Kurt, reporter Robin Warshaw's book revealed the results of Mary Koss's Miss NIMH-funded survey. There's was the first nationwide study of campus sexual assault ever, and the statistics rattled us all. 25% of women in college have been the victims of rape or attempted rape. 84% of these victims were acquainted with their assailants. Only 20% of women raped identified themselves as rape victims. I bought the book as a senior when it was a required text for a class called Self-Defense from the Inside Out. Holy shit, I thought then. Why hadn't anyone told me this before? Here in the pages of I Never Called It Rape, I can have a conversation with my college self. She wrote, not a lot, in purple pen, scratching asterisks next to the things that mattered most to her. One in four female respondents had an experience that met the legal definition of rape or attempted rape and... The average age when a rape incident occurred, either as perpetrator or victim, was uh, 18 and a half years old, and women were embarrassed about the details of the rape. Leaving a bar with a man, 
taking drugs, etc., and felt they would be blamed for what occurred, or they simply felt the man involved, the men involved had too much social status for their stories to be believed, and, in short, many men fail to perceive what has just happened as a rape. The question, our self-defense teacher said one afternoon when we were gathered around her cross-legged on mats in the gym, is not, what will he think of me if I don't answer his question, if I'm not polite, if I don't want to go? But what do I think of him? The simple rearrangement of pronouns flipped something in my brain forever. If a guy's on the street and approaches you and asks for the time, our teacher said, you don't have to answer him. Providing him the time of day is not your job. If you don't want to talk to him, keep walking. You don't have to be polite. You don't even have to be nice. Keep walking. Ask yourself, what do I think of him? Three years after the rape, I began volunteering at a local sexual assault support organization, staffing the crisis line and going with a team to talk to high school students about rape. In 1991, conversations about what constituted true consent were still new, and while the boys sat silently, the girls pushed back. So you're saying that if I go to a party in a really short skirt and I'm flirting all over the place, if I get raped, it's not my fault? Yes, I'd say. That's exactly what I'm saying. Sometimes it seemed to me that the girls just didn't want to hear that rape is never the victim's fault. They wanted to have something to believe in, rules to follow, a formula, Reasons other girls got raped and they didn't. Short skirts equal rape. Too much beer equals rape. Unlocked door equals rape. The part I wanted them to understand is that these equations can implode, constricting your whole life until one day you are sitting in a locked steel box breathing through an air hole with a straw and wondering, now, now am I safe? A couple months before the rape, a truck had hit me. It wasn't a big truck, one of those little ones, a Toyota or a Nissan, with a canopy on the back. I was riding across the sidewalk on my bike. I knew I was supposed to walk my bike across. But I had the green light and the white walking man. So I started to zip across when the man driving the truck, not seeing me, made the decision to turn right on red. I went down hard, but I was wearing a helmet. And though the truck didn't stop right away, it did soon enough. My legs and half my twisted bike were under the bumper when I wriggled free. I felt nothing in particular until I saw the horrified, worried face of the man emerging from the cab. Two women running from the building across the street. Oh my God, are you okay? Are you okay? A car stopped behind the truck. And more people whose sexes and sizes have been lost to memory got out. Lying on the cold, wet road, I was surrounded by concerned bystanders. I did feel something, mortification and shame. My arm and leg on the pavement side were both bleeding, and I hadn't been dressed for the weather or for biking. I was coming back from a class at the gym, so I was wearing a sweatshirt and black lycra pants. Ruined now, I thought. Shit. Are you okay? Everybody seemed to be saying the same thing over and over, and I was worried they were all going to get really wet. It was March in Eugene, with drizzle so thick and gray and 
constant. I couldn't tell whether the raindrops were moving up or down. I must have been in shock. Are you okay? Yeah, I mumbled, grabbing for the bumper and pulling myself off the ground. Hands all around, but I reached out for none of them. I'm fine. I'm okay. Somehow we all got to the sidewalk on the other side. My bike had a twisted rim and was unrideable. Are you sure you're okay? Can we help you get somewhere? Oh no, I'm fine. My dorm's right over there. I'm fine. And so everybody left, even the little truck that had flattened me, and I thought over and over. I feel like I've just been run over by a truck. In fact, I had been run over by a truck. But I couldn't say that out loud. I couldn't say how much it hurt. Embarrassed by being in the wrong place at the wrong time in the wrong pants, I limped back to my dorm in the rain. Do you understand yet why we blame ourselves when we are hit? Dragging the shame behind us like a twisted rim. In 2014, psychologists at the University of Oregon conducted the first comprehensive, university-wide survey of sexual assault and learned that 19% of female students are victims of rape or attempted rape during the time they're studying at Oregon. 19%, one in five women, today. I am still scraping at my story. I can't go back and get the young woman I was from the Italian restaurant before she climbs onto the boat. I can't stop the truck or the rapist, but I can let the girl I was know that I see her. I hear her. I know she is telling the truth. If nothing changes, and in 30 years, not nearly enough has changed, next year there will be 100,000 more assaults on our campuses. One is too many. 100,000. In the self-defense class, our teacher taught us that if we couldn't imagine doing something, cracking an assailant in the head with a stapler, opening up a can of pepper spray on an attacker, digging our, uh, our keys into the eyes of a would-be rapist, we wouldn't be able to act in a real crisis. Wielding the stapler, the pepper spray, and the keys, our teacher taught us the power of visualization, and I learned to imagine in advance what I might be called upon to do in an emergency. 100,000? This is an emergency. Together, let's visualize what we need to change the rape culture. I have my keys in my hand, and I'm holding them like a claw. Let's turn this motherfucking system around.